Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. speaker today, um, Catherine Means. So if you know Catherine, um, you know a great sister, um, a great sister who pours a lot of wisdom into your life. I, I can say that for myself personally. Uh, Catherine has taught a couple of times here already, and we're really excited to have her preaching today. Uh, so welcome her up. I was telling you that I was like, scroll through the rest of them and see if it'll get your memory. Okay. All right. Listen, we're going to go high with this thing because I need it. Um, I'm going to put this right here. So good morning. How are we doing? We're doing all right? Good. Um, so my name is Catherine Means. Oh, and hey, everybody pass the offering. Are y'all already doing it? Great job. Um, hey, so we're doing okay, but we're missing a lot of our men for sure, right? Yeah. But hey, I'm so thankful to belong to a church that empowers the women to use our gifts as well. Uh, what a gift to the body that the burden of leadership isn't just on one gender. Amen? Like, that is a big deal. Um, so we're going to pray for them really quickly. Um because God's moving. God's doing a lot of stuff. So um, Pastor Grant called um, last night just to check on me to see if I had everything I needed. And he told me that there's been several deliverances, um, but then also three physical healings. Um, So God is moving and we are so thankful. So as they wrap up, wrap up um, this morning, let's just pray for him. Okay. All right, God, thank you so much for our pastors in uh, Grant and Daniel and also um, all of the other leaders that are there, but just the men as well. God, thank you so much for all they poured into one another uh, this weekend, God, but also thank you for moving so mightily. Uh, You have moved so mightily, God. And so we just uh, seal that time in the blood of Jesus. We ask that you seal it in your Holy Spirit. And um, we just ask that you would give them safe travels uh, back in this rain. Uh, God, just pave the way uh, for them to come home safely, God. Anything that the enemy would try to steal um, that you have deposited, we just bind that in the name of Jesus. And we just plead the blood over every single one of them. God, thank you so much for what you've done in this weekend, but also how it's going to transform their families and this house, and we believe you for it, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're continuing our teaching series in James, and since Brandon did such a great job last week of teeing me up, we're just going to dive right in, okay? All right, so the book of James addresses the pride of the rich, favoritism for the rich, and persecution by the rich. It also confronts those tempted to retaliate with acts of violence um, or words, and it denounces injustice and rebukes those who are encouraging people to even um, achieve justice by violence intent to kill. Uh, And right there in the middle of all that madness (laughs) is our teaching text for today, Uh, and it is a call to wisdom. The thing the Jewish Christians James is writing to, the things they're going through are displacement and political unrest and persecution. 
And the question our text wrestles with amid all of that acutely uh, terrible extrinsic stuff, like external stuff, is like a more internal question of what is necessary to stay rooted in wisdom and in truth. So our teaching text is James 3, 13 through 18. And so while you guys are getting there, it should be on the screen, but I'm just going to go ahead and dive in and start reading. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna, to um, section it up. So going back to verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? So this is the banner verse of this passage, and it's meant to get our attention. Like, who among you is wise and understanding? And I imagine there were some who read this and thought, me, that sounds like me. Um, And maybe if we're honest, like really honest, some of us would answer the same way. Like, there are various reasons why we might answer that way. Like, college education, maybe even a graduate degree. You might watch the news regularly and be up to date on current events. You might be older and have lived a lot of life and uh, your life might have played out exactly how you thought it would and you stayed away from negative influences. And while those examples aren't positive or negative in and of themselves, I mention them because they are markers of a life of wisdom in our culture. But in asking the question, who among you is wise and understanding, this is James's way of saying, hey, if you're looking for what it looks like to have a life marked with wisdom, this is it. Like, forget about what everybody else says. This is it right here. Mm. So let's take a look at that way of wisdom, shall we? Yeah. So the rest of verse 13 states, by his good conduct, he should show his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Right out of the gate, he is changing the definition of wisdom. Like this type of wisdom is not about head knowledge. It's applied knowledge. And it has more to do with action than it does intellect. It is applied knowledge and it has more to do, yeah, It has more to do with our behavior and the attitude of that behavior. Like like it matters, the attitude of the way we act as well. Meekness, humility, gentleness. It's not about education at all. It's about action and character. Remember, he is writing this as a leader of the Church of Jerusalem to Jewish Christians that would have grown up being taught to esteem the religious leaders for their knowledge of the scriptures, being made to feel less than because they didn't have the same level of education or maybe to feel more superior because, I knew I should have taken this off, but it's buzzing and it's 
distracting me. I'm sorry. Um, they're made to feel less than because of their level of education or made to feel more superior because they were one of the chosen few, right? So this definition change is revolutionary. It would have been highly offensive and incendiary to a religious leader to read this. And at the very same time, totally liberating for somebody who had an elementary education and was a trade, like a tradesman, learned a trade. It's putting them both on the level playing ground, same level field, making wisdom accessible to everyone. So put in today's context, that's the equivalent to a politician or a seminary professor or a high-ranking military official. And your sweet little old grandma who has a middle school education or a blue-collar tradesman or the janitor at your school. Same level playing field. The wisdom of God is accessible to everyone. What a beautiful expression of the gospel. It's just gorgeous. Verses 14 through 16 go on to say, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. One definition of this word envy in Greek is zeal, uh, which is defined as great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. This word was used so often in some leadership circles who wanted to overthrow Roman rule, like they with great zeal. So this is about way more than jealousy as we understand it. Uh, this is deep convic conviction. There is great energy behind this conviction from generations of leaders going back to many stories in the Old Testament where God called individuals and at times the entire nation of Israel to violence in order to bring about his plans. So this gets complicated in our day and like our definition and understanding of what war is. And I'm not even going to try to dissect that for us because we do not have time. Um, but what you need to understand is in the context when they're reading this, the Jewish Christians would have understood what James was saying. He's basically calling the wisdom of the rulers foolish. This is, this is incendiary language. In fact, he called it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James is leaving nothing to the imagination by saying that worldly wisdom is born of Satan. Worldly wisdom is born of Satan. He contrasts divine wisdom with wisdom inspired by the values of a surrounding culture that is influenced by evil. Sound familiar? Yeah, so let's get into the nitty-gritty with this. Let's, like, what does this mean for us? What are some things our culture calls wise? Horoscopes. Manifesting your destiny. Years and years of graduate and postgraduate school amassing in hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you get too serious to make sure you're sexually compatible. Living with your fiance before you get married so you can save money. 
staying up to date on all the best shows to watch on whatever streaming platform strikes your fancy so you can be culturally relevant. Climbing the corporate ladder, working at an unholy pace up and to the right, neglecting your family for the almighty 401k, giving a person the autonomy to choose their preferred gender. Listen, by listing just a few of the many ways our culture defines wisdom, it's not to condemn. It is not, my heart is not to condemn, but to highlight the vast difference between what the world says and what the Bible says about heavenly wisdom. There is enough grace for your past, present, and future expressions of that worldly wisdom, okay? So this is not about pointing the finger and condemning. But what we'll not do is for Christ followers to turn a blind eye to the sin in their lives just because the culture around us calls it wisdom. Ignorance is not bliss. It is not. Any ambition detached from Jesus and his kingdom is born from Satan. And the Bible says in Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, we cannot serve two masters. And hear me, I'm not saying that saving money is foolish, right? I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that Netflix is evil, even though I did uh, cancel my subscription this weekend based on a personal conviction of the Holy Spirit. But that's my personal conviction, not yours, okay? That $11.99 needed to go to something else, okay? <laughs> so... Um, but it is, like I'm saying that the wisdom of heaven says to rightly relate those things and not let them distract you from what God is saying to you and asking of you, right? Okay, now on to the gold. That was hard. I don't, yeah, I don't like calling people, but it is, it's what it is, right? So now it's the gold of verses 17 and 18, all right? But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Jewish tradition often envisioned like wisdom literally descending from heaven. It was peace-loving and full of mercy and good fruit, just what we read about. Um, but it's a completely different description of wisdom in contrast to the counsel that many of the Jewish Christians were receiving, supporting retaliation against Rome. Here we are still talking about, we got to overthrow thing. Yeah, all of that. And even the Jewish religious leaders, I mean, remember, these, these um, people that James is writing to are running for their lives they're running for their lives because they're being persecuted. But James is literally flipping their definition of wisdom on its head because their faith was at stake. Over and over in the book of James, he talks about the importance of their actions matching what they said they believed. And he is making it plain that wisdom has nothing to do with how much you know and everything to do with how willing you are to yield to the thoughts and ways of Jesus. The great commission of going out into all the world and making disciples was at stake. Because if they're more worried about their safety and their comfort 
and retaliating against Rome, how on earth are they ever going to have enough time to share the gospel with their neighbors? Which leads me to why this matters to us. I could stop and just say, stay away from jealousy and envy and selfish ambition, and instead pursue peace-loving and gentle and pure wisdom from God, because that sounds normal, right? Like in the Bible Belt, like, let's spit shine it. Yeah, polish you up and then send you out. And how is that supposed to change the world? How is that supposed to change your heart? How often do we just come to church to check off a box and we don't, you know, we always think we have to do like a 180 degree turn. Sometimes Jesus is just asking us to like turn by two degrees and then the next week turn by two degrees. And then in a year, you're a completely different person, right? If we just do what he puts in front of us to do and trust him to do the good work, we're going to get there. We are going to get there. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to just like spit shine you and send you out. This is an applied knowledge, right? That's what we've learned. Wisdom is not about head knowledge. It's about how we apply it. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. It's a lengthier explanation of what godly wisdom actually looks like. So strap in because I'm going to read the whole thing and it's good, okay? All right. <laughs> Actually, before I do that, I'm going to get some water. Thank you, Cammy, for undoing it for me. All right. <laughs> the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. 
He uses the foolish things of the world to confuse the wise. Quote, unquote. And what does this passage say Christ is? God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. So in today's world, when we have a question, what do we do? We Google it. We ask Google, Siri, or Alexa. And I'm sorry if I just set off all your phones. Um, we ask it, and we expect to get that answer immediately, right? Uh, and when they can't, just answer it outright because we didn't ask the right questions or whatever. And we have to, like, search it out. We have to actually, like, type it in and not just yeah. It's another 30 seconds before we get the answer, and we're like, ugh. And it just exposes like our complete and utter reliance on technology. It's scary, y'all. Pick up a book, okay? Like, put your phones down and pick up a book. Um, but, but what happens when we have a more important question? Like, what to pursue as a career? Or who to marry? Or, shoot... I married this person, but like I'm second guessing that decision right now. I don't know what do I do now. Or even things that don't necessarily seem like life defining questions, but actually are. Like my friends at work are total gossips, and uh, when I leave conversations with them, I feel very far from the Lord, and I don't know what to do. Or I really disagree with someone in my community group about politics, and I don't know how to be in relationship with them without totally losing my cool one day. Or I can't go a day without watching the news because I need to know what is happening in the world. But also, when I watch the news, I start to feel my anxiety ramp up. And what do we do then? Turns out the most important practical questions that we have to ask we can't ask Google, Siri, or Alexa and get our questions answered in 30 seconds or less. Super inconvenient, right? So, so sometimes, what do we do? Like, how do we hold the tension of living in this instant world that we live in and having long questions? I love that you prayed for patience this morning. That long-suffering nature of God like, we've got to learn that, family. We have got to learn it. Sometimes we go straight to the Bible, and we expect it to immediately give us the answers just like all of our technology, right? But as I have found to be true in the last eight months of my relationship with Jesus, is that it is an honor to be invited by God to search out a matter where the answer only comes in his presence. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Do you realize that when we go to God and search out a matter, we're actively present today operating in the role of king and priest that Daniel talked about two weeks ago? It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. 
family, hear me. Consecrated people don't wail and moan about the state of the world because we are too busy buying up oil in the presence of the king with our eyes trained to the horizon for his coming. We do not wail and moan. Consecrated people don't numb out on the newest Netflix series while neglecting the Lord's presence. Consecrated people make radical, foolish decisions to the world around how they spend their time and what media they allow into their homes. Consecrated people don't stand around a water cooler with their office buddies and badmouth their boss as a way of venting. Consecrated people spend their lunch hours laying face down on the floor in their office or in their cars, asking God to give them his heart for their boss and what he might want to teach, him, teach them about himself through learning to love their boss as well. What? Kevin, that's crazy. Do you know how unfair my boss is? No, I don't. And with all the love in my heart, it doesn't matter. Because as a consecrated one, the demand is on you. The demand is on me as a consecrated one. How fair was it? that Jesus left the throne room of heaven, became a baby, totally dependent on his own creation, grew up, lived a sinless life, was slaughtered as the consecrated lamb. The demand was on him. And we are called Christ followers. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We are Christ followers. We follow Jesus and Jesus humbled himself. I remember having a rather frank conversation with God this summer, <clears throat> and I let him know how I felt about the thing. When he asked me to write an apology letter to someone who had hurt me deeply, notice I did not say a forgiveness letter. I said an apology letter. I was indignant. I was so mad at the Lord. I could not believe he was asking me to do this. And my inner monologue, maybe it wasn't inner. I think maybe I was talking to him out loud in my bathroom. It went something like this. God, they did me wrong. And you want me to apologize to them? They haven't even apologized to me. And like, I don't even know how to do this. Because I know you don't want me to bring up what they did to me. And I, so I don't even know what to say. And you know what he said? Keep it short. Less is more. And I was like, okay. Well, at least I don't have to, like, write a big, long letter and, like, put it with fluff that I don't actually believe. And, like, oh, man. Um, hmm. And I, I vacillated back and forth. I was like, no way does the Lord want me to do this. Like, God would not ask me to do something so terrible. Yeah, right. A situation rife with the opportunity for me to die to myself, that has Jesus written all over it. Okay? <laughs> it does. 
Uh, I was so mad. And because he knew my thoughts, here's what he said next. This isn't about you and them. This is about me and you. How close do you want to be to me? And I'm telling you, from that moment, he had me. He had me. I would have done whatever he told me to do. Because he knew that at the beginning of the summer, all I wanted was him. Like, I just wanted to be as close to him as I possibly could. In the secret place, further than I'd ever been before. And you know what's interesting is I'm, I, I did that and I never heard back from the person. But that's not even the point. God was faithful and he showed up and he ushered me in further than I've ever been. Because it, at the end of the day, it was about me and him. So family, we are Christ followers and we follow his example and his leading even if it doesn't make sense. And we do that for two reasons. One, because he is worthy of our obedience. And two, because it keeps us close to him and it's in his presence that we find all that we need. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, to deviate from the truth for the sake of some prospect of hope of our own can never be wise, however slight that deviation may be. It is, our, it is not our judgment of the situation which can show us what is wise, but only the truth of the word of God. Here alone lies the promise of God's faithfulness and help. It will always be true that the wisest course for the disciple is always to abide solely by the word of God in all simplicity. We've already established in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said Christ is the wisdom of God. And while that is miracle enough, it is miracle enough. Paul also says in chapter 2, verse 16, that we have the mind of Christ. Christ followers have available to them the mind of Christ. All we have to do is receive it. So think about it. If you follow Jesus, you have the mind of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what this means? What is in your mind? Think about what's in your mind. You have thoughts. You have memories. An imagination. We are privy to the thoughts of God on a matter. Every memory that he has of your life, I guarantee you, is more clear than your memory of that. We have the memories of God about our life. So we can look at them rightly, not through our own hurt and experience, but through Almighty God. We are privy to his imagination. That's incredible. There's no room for hopelessness in a Christ follower when we have access to the imagination of God. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is available. So what is it? What is it? What is that situation in your life that feels impossible and scary and where you don't know up from down? I want you to think about it. I want you to find it wherever it is in your mind. And I want you to kind of like bring it in front of you and like hold it. Come on. Come on. Get it. Find it. And then bring it. You're holding it in front of the Lord. I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is. I don't need to know what it is. You don't need to share it with me. 
But I do know that God has lots of thoughts about it. He has so many thoughts about it. And it's important to him because you are important to him. It's important to you and you are everything to him. It's important to him. So have you talked to him about it? Have you talked to him? How often do you talk to him about it? Do you talk to him about it more than you talk to everybody else about it? And hear me, I'm not saying that we aren't supposed to talk to each other about things, especially like getting counsel from our leaders and our, our friends that are walking with us with Jesus. We are not meant to live alone. Like God gave us each other on purpose. But I wonder... If you talk to everyone else except for Holy Spirit about the most important parts of your life, not only do you miss out on the wisdom of God from the very source, I kind of think it breaks his heart. So most of you know I've never been married, and I'm about to be 43 years old this month. I know it's a shock, but everybody take a deep breath. It's true. <clears throat> and I'm telling you. I, up until about five years ago, I would talk to literally everyone about everything before I brought it to the Lord. And I don't remember a specific moment that I said this, um, although I'm pretty sure I did because it was so deep in me. I was like, I don't remember a moment, but I'm pretty positive it happened. Um, my overall reasoning was because it was so much more affirming to vent or share with another person with skin on about all the stuff that was aggravating me or frustrating me or hurting me because they could actually talk back and tell me what I wanted to hear. Even the good stuff. You guys, we live in a culture where like Instagram and all the things lie to us and say, if it's not on social media, it didn't count or it didn't happen. What? What kind of nonsense is that? And so, but listen, I bought into it hook, line, and sinker, and I, I would paste that stuff everywhere. And then I would, like, tell all my friends and all the things so that they, I could hear an audible voice tell me how excited they were for me and how proud of, how proud of me they were, you know? And, <sighs> but here's what I found to be true in the last eight months. Well, the last five years, really, but especially in the last eight months. Taking a matter before the Lord, whether good or challenging, is far better than any conversation I have ever instigated with a friend, a leader, or a family member. He is so present. He is so present. And he may not be faithful to tell me what I want to hear. But he is faithful every time to tell me the truth. And I get to sit in that and revel in it sometimes. And sometimes I walk away from those conversations with the opportunity to grow. He never leaves you like he finds you. And I love my people and I love when my people want to celebrate me. But there is literally nothing that compares with sitting before the Lord and hearing him tell you that he is proud of you. Nothing. 
there's a song by Abby Gamboa called Window for Glory to Slide In. And I love it. And the lyrics are, she's singing this to the Lord. She's saying this to the Lord. I am delighted to search out a matter. You hide things for me to discover. Their secrets just two lovers know. Do you have preferences? What are your longings? What could I say that would beckon your coming? Should I be sitting or should I go searching? And if I go searching, for what am I looking? What did you do to me? I am good for nothing else. I'm so far gone, I'm fully beside myself. When you find love, all bets are off. I've given in. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found. Always found in times of trouble. I think if I was really honest with myself for most of my relationship with the Lord, I would have said that I didn't approach him when I needed wisdom because I didn't actually believe I would hear from him. I knew he spoke to other people, like leaders in my life, but I didn't think I would hear from him. And maybe I tried a couple times and I didn't hear him and maybe it made me a little gun shy or maybe a big maybe. I was too busy talking at him, telling him all the many ways I was dissatisfied with my life that I couldn't hear him actually giving me words of life. A little earlier in James, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is what God values because it is the overflow of a life spent in his presence and intimacy with him. And so it should be what we value. And I said should, and I don't even like the word should, but it should be what we value too. But if it hasn't been what you valued, he is a God of so much mercy Repent for all the worldly things you have invested time and energy into and earnestly seek him for more wisdom. And he will not rebuke you for asking. Abby asked questions of the Lord in her song, and I want us to take a look at them because this has been a game changer for me. So write them down if you can. Do you have preferences? What are your longings? When's the last time you asked the Lord those two questions instead of saying, hey, God, here are my preferences. Here's how I want my life to go. Here's all the things I'm longing for and desire that you have not given me yet. How would our relationships change? How would we see God rightly if we asked him those questions instead of demanding him to hear our preferences and our longings. What could I say that would beckon your coming? Should I be sitting or should I go searching? She doesn't even know if she should sit or if she should search for something. And then she's so open-handed. It's like, okay, so if I'm supposed to be searching, for what am I looking we are not bringing any assumptions to the Lord. We're just asking, what are your thoughts? 
listen, it's not groundbreaking every time I meet with him like this. And sometimes I do not get the answers to my questions until I'm actually walking out the process. But I'm telling you, taking those questions to him has been a game changer in our relationship. It's been a game changer in the level of intimacy that I have experienced with the Father. He meets me, and it has nothing to do with who I am and everything to do with the faithful God that he is. He does not love me any more than he loves every single one of y'all. And so I'm just telling you, this is lived experience. This is applied knowledge that I want for you, too. And then comes verse 18 of James chapter 3. And I'm going to read it in a different um, translation because it's awesome. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So it's winter right now, but spring is coming, which is when we plant the seeds. What would it look like? in our little corner of the world if we planted seeds of peace. Because everywhere I look, the world looks crazy. And y'all, I don't even watch the news, and I know enough right now what's happened in the last week and a half to like have my anxiety going into a tailspin if I think about it too much. Add to that, we're at the top of an election year, and we are literally kindling, ready to be set ablaze. The good news, the life-giving news, is that we are the recipients of the wisdom of God in Jesus. And I guarantee you, he has lots of thoughts about what's going on. So turn off the news and get quiet in his presence and find out what they are. It's time to plant seeds of peace because he has promised us that we would reap a harvest of righteousness. And what is the timeline of harvest? So we plant seeds of peace in the spring and we start to see things grow and all of the things in the summer. And then in the fall is harvest. What's also in the fall this year? The election. So what if our corner of the world, instead of all of the things that we could anticipate coming from that election, is a harvest of righteousness? Are we Christ followers or not? Are we ruled by what's going to happen or are we ruled by the Spirit of God? We have to wake up to the wonder that is the wisdom of God, the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Jesus are available to us. In the mystery of transition, it's easy to to succumb to confusion, but we must stay awake to the wonder. In the joy of celebration, it's easy to forget the giver of our good gifts, but we must stay awake to the wonder and the sorrow of grief It is easy to be tempted to numb out, but we must stay awake to the wonder. What are his thoughts? Remembering the nature of our God 
and letting that tether us to the truth that he is the wisdom we need. He is good and he is kind and his goodness and his kindness do not have a ceiling. Do not buy into the lie that he was good and kind to me in this season and so like I've reached my limit. I don't need to ask or believe for something else. No, no, no. The goodness and the kindness of God does not have a ceiling. It's not because you've earned it. It's because of who he is. And he keeps his promises. So stand with me as we just respond to Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you've been resourceful. Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org.